You're listening to End of the Line on WRIR 97.3 FM Richmond. End of the Line is an ongoing podcast about the pipeline struggles in Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic. I'm Whitney Whiting. If this benefited like my neighbors or, or people that need this, that, that would be different. But to think that this is for profit. The need for natural gas is diminished. There's other pipelines. They don't need this pipeline. There are no jobs. I got straight from the horse's mouth. I asked the guy at the Chamber of Commerce meeting, I said, so how many permanent jobs is Nelson County going to get from this pipeline? He said, none. None. In this episode, we're going to address a central question to the debate over these pipelines, one that has come up time and time again. Are these projects even needed? And the timing for addressing that question could not be better. Friday's kind of our family night, you know. I mean, personally, was having a really great Friday evening with my kids. And uh, Ian says to me, something really big just came in from FERC. The news came via email for those closest to the pipeline struggles, and then quickly spread through text messages and social media. On Friday, October 13th, exactly one week prior to the airing of this episode, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, also known as FERC, issued final permits for both the Mountain Valley and Atlantic Coast pipelines. We spoke to Carolyn Riley the day after the announcement to get her reaction to the news. Carolyn's family owns a farm in Franklin County that would be significantly impacted by the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I personally, and I think other organizers and and people felt like, well, we have some time. Like, we'll just wait for the Senate hearings, for the two commissioners. As we speak, FERC still only has three commissioners, with two vacant seats left waiting to be affirmed through upcoming Senate hearings. The vote for these two nearly identical pipelines took place among a backlog of other projects waiting to be addressed by the agency. I think we got a little, at least I got a little comfortable or felt like, oh, we have some time, some breathing room. So, I mean, yes, we knew that this would be happening. But what I don't think I was expecting, and I don't know about Lauren or anyone else, is that they would, that they would do them at the same time like that. That they, would, that they are treating them in this way of their very similar projects. That's Lauren Stockman in the background. He works for Oil Change International, and we'll hear more from him in future episodes. Lauren noted that although the passing of the permits came as no surprise, there was something unexpected. What I think is more interesting is Lafleur's dissent, and that's probably the most unusual thing here. Cheryl LaFleur is a third and longest-standing member of FERC. Her dissenting vote against both pipelines was completely unexpected. That never happens with FERC. And it's caused mixed reactions amongst pipeline opponents. And here we've got LaFleur actually dissenting, and these two pipelines have been certified with only two votes of what should be a five-member panel. Right. And... And the two votes are coming from these newly appointed, fresh, you know, commissioners appointed by Trump uh, who have barely been in the job two months. And they uh, haven't even dealt, I believe, with all the backlog that was 
build up over the time when there wasn't a quorum, and here they are speeding these two projects through the process. We also spoke to Lee Stewart, whose work with the group Beyond Extreme Energy has been targeting FERC as a rubber stamp for fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah, I was initially very shocked to learn that Cheryl LaFleur issued a dissenting vote and comments. Um, She has been very favorable to the industry throughout her whole time at FERC. In fact, when Trump um, became president, he moved the chairmanship from Norman Bay, who's viewed as less of a a friend of the industry, um, to Cheryl LaFleur. And that's what prompted Norman Bay to resign. So that's... uh, to, to see her vote no on this was, was quite shocking. Still, Lee isn't ready to give the commissioner a celebration for her vote. I have no doubt that she would not have voted that way if her vote would have been a deciding vote. Um, I think she, she was able to vote that way because she knew that the ship was going forward anyway, regardless of what she said. Um, and uh, I think FERC is dealing with this growing um, movement of people across the country who are identifying it as a rubber stamp for the fracked gas industry that is more about regulating the people instead of the industries. You know, there's going to be a lot of questions asked, and I'm sure uh, a lot of courtroom time spent looking at how this was actually done in this time frame ahead of other projects and in the face of dissent from the longest serving commissioner on on the commission. So what does a final permit from FERC really mean? Carolyn says pipeline companies can now begin cutting down trees on land where they already have easements. But calling it a final permit might be a little premature since there are still so many other state permits that the companies must obtain before they can start construction. Now, there's also this factor that I think is um, scary and intimidating, but essentially, you know, with Dakota Access, there were certain permits that weren't in place, but they started anyways. They started construction. You know, a lot of these pipeline companies, it is cheaper for them to just pay the fines for their quote-unquote mistakes and just pay the fees. The actual name of the permit is also a tad ironic. It's called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity. The Certificate of Necessity and Public Convenience. Yeah. I think I put in my statement from oil change that this is not convenient or necessary. Right. It's definitely not (laughs) convenient for landowners. Which brings us, of course, to the question of necessity. Are these pipelines even needed? Are they necessary in order to do what Dominion claims they're trying to do, meet a growing demand for electricity and natural gas for their customers? Then let me reverse it. How do we know that it is needed? That's Tom Hadwin. He's worked for electric and gas utilities in Michigan and New York State, even leading a department that was responsible for permitting multi-billion dollar utility projects at both the state and federal level. Because of his background, grassroots groups began reaching out to him about the proposed pipelines in Virginia. 
um, you know, my interest here in Virginia is to really help develop a 21st century energy system. And that's the way I've always approached it. I'm not for this project or against this project to say, does it fit uh, into a modern energy system? And the more I looked at it, it didn't make sense. Uh, the information that was being submitted to the regulators didn't match the message that was going out to the media from the pipeline owners. Um, I thought the politicians were being misled by studies that had, had faulty assumptions and uh, incorrect conclusions, and that informed the whole narrative. I say to those other 49 states, good luck, but watch out, Virginia <laughs> is coming. This pipeline, which is one of the largest that has ever been built in decades, will provide Virginia with an energy superhighway to fuel our new economy and our drive to become a manufacturing hub. This project will mean lower energy costs for all Virginia customers. As the numbers I'm about to present illustrate, this project is something that we have desperately needed in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And people pretty much split into camps of this is cheaper, it's going to give us more jobs, and people say this is going to make a mess of our beautiful state. So I said, all right, well, let me look at this. I looked at the utility issues. Why is this happening? Is it good for the company? Is it good for the customers? What's the regulatory pro uh, process? Is that thorough? Um, and I was disturbed by a lot of the answers I found. There has been no justification of a market need as to why more gas is needed. Uh, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, does not assess that. They only look at, are there contracts for at least some of the capacity of a new pipeline? The contracts for the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, and I could say the same thing for the, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, but for the, for the ACP, the contracts are signed by subsidiaries of the developers of the pipeline. It's not an arm's length market driven transaction. Okay. And there is no evaluation of that at the federal regulatory level. You know, I believe in, in helping other people and I believe in the common good, you know, and you do those things for things that we all share. But as I've learned about this pipeline, it's not something that we're gonna benefit from. Irene Leach is a unique person in this fight. Not only is her home close to the Mountain Valley Pipeline in Southwest Virginia, but the Buckingham County farm that has been in her family for generations would be cut by the ACP as well. And they're talking about the jobs and they're talking about you know all these opportunities. Well, if gas was gonna bring Buckingham that opportunity, it would already be there because we've got the Transco line that's been there for 50 years. And Sharon Ponton, a familiar voice to our podcast, said the same thing. There are four lines in the ground along the Transco line, four of them. You know, Governor McAuliffe says, oh, we're going to get all this new industry. <laughs> if we were going to get new industry, why haven't they tapped into the gas line that is already there? The Department of Energy has studied this. Uh, they put out several reports in 2015 that says there's plenty of pipeline capacity going through Virginia and North Carolina. For decades, it's gone from the south to the north. 
now it's moving gas from the, the big gas production zones in, in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, all the way right now to the Texas-Louisiana border, going through Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina on the way. And that capacity is being added to that system is several times the capacity that the ACP would provide. Now, Dominion's counter to that is, well, all of these new pipelines that are providing this extra capacity are what they call fully subscribed, meaning there are contracts for them. That much is accurate, but those contracts have been mostly signed by marketing subsidiaries of the gas producers. So when they say fully subscribed, it sounds like, well, it's already spoken for. Well, it's not really. It's spoken for by people who want to sell it to utilities and other users. Okay, so there's plenty of pipeline capacity and production uh, in the existing pipeline system and the planned expansion to those existing pipelines. If you're just tuning in, you're catching End of the Line on WRIR 97.3 FM Richmond. You can find all episodes from End of the Line at soundcloud.com slash pipeline podcast. I'm Whitney Whiting. Both the Mountain Valley and Atlantic Coast Pipeline received federal permits from FERC just last week. Today, we're asking a central question to the debate over pipelines in Virginia, are these two pipelines even needed? It never made sense to me that you would have Mountain Valley and Atlantic Coast Pipeline more or less originating in the same place, more or less going to the same place. And I was, you know, as a business guy, I kept thinking, like, why would they not want to join forces, cut costs, and build together, right? It makes so much sense. Like, it just the basic sense, right? That's Richard Averett a landowner whose family, home, and business will be directly impacted by the ACP in Nelson County. And for a long time, I thought the only real reason was that it's a land grab, and I think that's partially true, right? Because they, they, once they get this easement, they own it, they can do other things with it, they can lease it back to other people, they can run, they can run another pipeline through it. So it's a, it's a, if you look at Dominion's books, easements are in their asset column, right? So why would you want to share an easement if you can own it yourself as a company? Okay, I thought that made some sense. But it never, it still didn't feel like by itself that would, would be valuable enough to outweigh the costs of building this thing on your own. What Richard and others would soon learn is that in our current regulatory system, corporations like Dominion are invited by regulators to build more pipelines than may even be necessary. This is because regulators at FERC guarantee an even higher rate of return for natural gas pipelines than they do for any other infrastructure project. And while the numbers game may be hard for some folks to grasp, Tom Hadwin does a pretty good job of breaking it down for us. But first, a little history on energy demand in the United States. Throughout the the 20th century, electricity use went up as fast or faster as population growth and economic growth. That was pretty much a given. And, and actually, that helped us create the kind of society and culture economy that we have today. But since 2008, uh, electricity use throughout the country has either been flat or declining. The reason for this, says Tom, is twofold. 
higher energy efficiency standards on everything from appliances to building designs, and increasing affordability of renewables. So even though that our population is increasing, that our economic activity increase is increasing, our use of energy is not. That's a big problem for utility companies. The basic formula for utilities is if we build more, we earn more. Okay, this, all the things that they have built, power plants, uh, transmission lines, buildings, uh, those are considered a rate base. And they're given a rate of return by the regulators that they say will pay for all of their costs and give them an adequate profit so they can continue to attract shareholders. Mm -hmm. And it will also be a fair cost to ratepayers. Okay, and that's worked pretty well for over 100 years until the last 10 years or so. And with the, with the flattening of demand, that is also flattening utility revenues. But of course, as Tom explained, it's not just the utilities' revenues that are flattening, it's the revenues of the parent company as well, and thus the amount of money that goes to its shareholders. Dominion Energy is a holding company for the utility and its other subsidiaries, and the relationship between utility and holding company hasn't always been a loving partnership. So those companies say, look, our shareholders need a continued stream of growing revenues in order to keep our share price up and to keep our bonuses coming in, okay? And they're very bright, very capable people. So they went out and said, how can we do this? Knowing that uh, this is gonna be a, a condition for us for a long time, this flat to declining energy use. And this is where the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission comes back in. What these intelligent executives said is, look, we know that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is paying us 50% higher rate of return to build a natural gas pipeline than we get to build transmission lines or power plants. And now that we're using more natural gas for power plants, why don't we get into the pipeline building business? And about a dozen of those large utility holding companies, the ones that own the ACP, are three of the four largest in the United States. They are chasing this you know, much higher source of revenue uh, because their utility revenues are flat. And the advantage it gives them is to use the customers of their utilities to pay for it. According to Tom, it's a full 15% rate of return for the entire financing of the project, not just the equity the companies put into it, but also on the amount they must borrow from big banks like Wells Fargo and others. Now, you're a huge multinational corporation. You have billions of dollars. You look out at the world and you say, where can I invest this money for the highest return, right? Every hedge fund in America would take that bet if they could get a guaranteed no risk. So even if they never pump a frickin' ounce of gas in here, they're gonna they're gonna own the easements, and they're gonna and they're gonna get all this money back on their investment, which they can't put anywhere else for that kind of that kind of return, right? So the incentives are totally screwed up. So there are some people who um, have the fantasy that this all is uh, free market and competition um, protects consumers, but. 
that is completely uh, cannot be appropriately applied to um, utilities in the United States today at all. These companies are building the pipeline because they make a whole lot more money doing it. And by having their subsidiaries sign the contracts, they pass that higher cost on to their ratepayers, as long as the regulators approve it. Because the state regulators still have the ability to say whether that's an appropriate cost or not. And would that be the SCC? In Virginia, it's the State Corporation Commission, yes. There's a North Carolina Utilities Commission that would do the same thing down there. Now the thing is, the law is pretty clear for those people to say that you cannot pass on a cost unless it's the lower of actual cost or the market price. According to Tom, to determine that market price, you just have to look at the cost that it currently takes to transport gas through existing lines that are already servicing Dominion's power plants, such as the Transco line. These existing pipelines cost three to eight times less to transport gas than the ACP will. But Tom says, if Dominion were limited to only charging that market price to us, the ratepayers, they wouldn't recover nearly enough to pay back their investment and their lenders for the five billion or more it will cost to build it in the first place. I mean, the ACP will be probably the most expensive pipeline on the East Coast in terms of what it costs to transport gas. $1.88 is the public, published rate. That's about 60% of the current cost of natural gas. So if you, had, if you ordered something from Amazon and then you had to add 60% in freight costs, would you think that's a real good deal? Especially when somebody else says, you know, I'll give it to you for a dime or two. That's exactly what we're being asked to do with these pipelines, is to close our eyes, close our ears, because nobody's really telling us about this, and pretend that we believe the story that this is going to be cheaper for us. And because it's cheaper, it will create more jobs. And neither one of those things will happen from any of the pipelines that are being proposed right now. Right now, they're following what makes their shareholders the most money, and that is to build more things that we don't necessarily need and to charge their ratepayers more than they should pay uh, in order to make the shareholders happy. The, the deal was, in all my years in utility business, was you had to balance the interest of the shareholders with the interests of the ratepayers. That's not happening with these projects now. It's all a one-way street to the shareholders. And I've never known a company to succeed in the long run that puts the interest of its owners ahead of its customers. To me, that's a formula for failure. As bright as those executives are, they're only looking at one thing. How do I make more money for my shareholders? And they're doing it on the backs of their customers. Have you ever been to one of the shareholder meetings? No because I don't own any Dominion shares right now. I wanted to ask Tom that because all of these points he just mentioned, they seem like things that shareholders might want to know as well. However, he's right. You do have to own shares in the company in order to attend their annual meetings. Luckily, we know some folks who did just that. We spoke with one person, Donnie Williams of Lesby, Maryland, at the end of Dominion's last shareholder meeting which was held in downtown Richmond in May of this year. Donnie was actually inside the meeting for its entire duration and explained to us how it went from the inside. 
There's a lot of people who took a lot of time from their lives. Like not all of us are busy. Like none of us have like extra time to just do things. Who made sure that you know they are here in Richmond at this um, meeting? And if they are shareholders, great that they came. And if they're not shareholders, great that they found a way to get into there. And, and just really like emotionally plea with Tom Farrell and with the board and with the investors that like you know this is disrupting their lives in a major way, and, and that's not okay. And um, and basically, Dominion's answer essentially is thanks for your comment. Um, and so we know, like in you know the other 364 days of the year, how Dominion deals with all this. Like they don't; they just want to prioritize the profits of everything else. But standing face to face with these people and watching that be the result is is telling for sure. Um, and definitely, whatever people's reasons are for not being happy with Dominion, I hope they hold on to those, and I hope they connect with other communities who also aren't happy with Dominion, because there's a whole lot of us, and it's growing all the time. And definitely the more we work together to just beat down Dominion in Richmond or everywhere else, like that's how we're going to do it. This is, um, you know, the last rush bonanza for carbon energy resources on the East Coast. We're in an environment where people are feeling a lot more empowered and they feel a lot more energized and, um, and a lot more vocal. I think what what's important now is that you know we've there have been these massive coalitions that have been formed that is a truly I don't know if beautiful is the right word but I really think there's a strong solidarity amongst all the pipeline fighters all the groups that have been working on this that has grown over the last three years um, and I think that what's imperative now is that we are keeping our eyes out for each other, especially for the landowners, which is what my goal is, is to help empower the landowners who are on the ground and know what are our rights. There still is a process that has to be followed, that should be followed. And it's keeping them accountable to that, that is going to be our biggest task. More to come in the next episode of End of the Line. End of the Line is produced by Katie Wood and Whitney Whiting, with support from a growing network of people throughout Virginia who are keeping their eyes and ears to the ground in the coming months as the pipeline saga unfolds. Special thanks for this episode goes to Carolyn Riley, Lauren Stockman, Tom Hadwin, Lee Stewart, Donnie Williams, and so many other voices from frontline communities. Music by Restroy. Find the full EP at milkfactoryproductions.bandcamp.com. Additional music by Loba Marino. Find them on lobamarinomusic.com. To hear more from our conversation with Tom Hadwin and to catch up on all episodes from End of the Line, go to soundcloud.com slash pipeline podcast.